welcome to The Pot of Gold, where we talk all things precious metals and their markets. Today, we discuss what fast money and slow money say about sentiment in the gold price, how when the Fed is in a tightening cycle, we all are, and the dollar positive environment, which could provide a headwind for gold. I'm your host, Shay Russell of ABC Bullion, and joining me today is precious metals expert, Nick Frappel from ABC Refinery. Nick, how are you, mate? Farewell, thanks, Shay. Good to see you again. It's good to see you again. Now, we have an exciting show planned for everybody today, and we will get to what we're talking about shortly. Uh, But first of all, what a difference two weeks makes. Now, our last podcast was on the 3rd of February, and since then, gold is up 3.7%, or about 66 US bucks an ounce at the time of recording today. Uh, That might have jumped even uh, more by the time we finish our podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so since then, we've seen gold try and test, uh, try and reach uh, 1880 only to be rejected. Now, I want to cover two things here. First of all, what has driven these moves in the past two weeks? Uh, and then if I could get you to add some broader context around what uh, these moves are telling us about the gold market in general. Yeah, sure. I mean, the thing is, is that, um, you know, you can't really ignore the uh, Russia-Ukraine situation, which is kind of unfolding, you know, as we speak. Um, It's the clear principal driver. And the interesting thing is, is to contrast that with the traditional drivers of gold, um, which are sort of heading the other way. But um, yeah, you know, risk adversity with regards to um, what's going on, Russian threats to the Ukraine and so on. Um, And the important thing from a a technical and a sort of price action point of view is that we've gone up through the weekly cloud, gone up through 1834, which I think was the uh, weekly cloud top. Once we get through there, that's obviously um, a swing to the medium term bullish uh, outlook. And I think we saw probably a little bit of short covering going on um, there or thereabouts. So technically, that that was really positive. And the price pretty much headed up to the um, highs that uh, that were made in November of last year. And that's been a sort of fairly natural place. Perhaps that was a major, major, major high. Gold sank significantly after that. So that's the level where, you know, gold, gold you know, has paused for, for now, or certainly paused before I entered this room. Um, since then, actually, talking about, you, you know, Russia, Ukraine, um, there has been some news on Russian media apparently uh, saying that um, the Ukrainians apparently fired some mortar rockets at um, unspecified positions, unspecified because I can't see the news right in front of me. Um, but that just just underscores the fact that ge- right now it's about geopolitics. It's not so much about real real rates and the and the dollar. Yep. Awesome. Nick, while I've got you here, and we are going to talk about real rates in the dollar later in today's podcast, um, but I just want to touch on a little bit of managed money. What's managed money telling us about the gold market? Well, that's the interesting thing, actually, because, of course, we can only look at managed money up until the 8th of February, but it's not telling you a lot in the sense that it's not telling you that, um, you know, people are pivoting towards gold in any major way. So managed money longs in the week ending uh, the 8th of February, most recent data, they picked up about um, 800,000 ounces, 900,000 ounces, just under actually. So, and that that was an increase of about um, 8% from not a very large position to begin with. So managed money longs, close of business 8th of February, um, two two Tuesdays ago, uh, that is 11.7 million ounces long. 
in the context of uh, the sort of the absolute highest longs and so on, that's that's quite quite low. The largest long I think we've seen was in July 2016. It was over 30 million ounces. What were the shorts doing? The shorts were actually buying more than the longs. The, sh the shorts over that same weekly period bought about 1 million and 63,000 ounces. So not quite twice as much, but most of that buying impetus in the managed money sector, the investors effectively, um, more of it was coming from short covering than from fresh uh, fresh longs. So that's that's uh, interesting. And if you look at um, other investor sort of data, if you look at where there has been a general move into gold ETFs, but again, it's been pretty steady, and it hasn't necessarily, um, you know, the, the 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 data is still below 100 million ounces. There have been outflow days as well as inflow days, and the big inflow days, and uh, if I recall correctly, haven't been super large inflows. So this is not a market where large amounts of investor money is uh, rotating into it. Uh, look, Nick, I will be very interested to recap um recap the inflows into managed money and gold ETFs as well in our podcast for the next two weeks based on what's unfolding mm, right now yeah, as absolutely. we record this. Um, all right, so we know gold's jumping up. It's jumped up about uh, 2 or $3 per ounce while we've been recording. So let's see what it finishes at today. But before we get to the end of today's podcast, we've got to touch on silver. Now, silver has done what it, uh, what it does best, and that's tag along for the ride as gold rallies. It's up 5% in the last two weeks to around $23.50 per ounce at the time of making this podcast. Of course, that's in US dollars. Um, quick take on this one. What's managed money doing here? What sort of action are we seeing um, from the managed money sector over here? Well, it's kind of the, 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 the reverse in the sense that if you look at it up to the 8th of Feb again, you've seen a decline in managed money. So about just over 14 million, about 14 and a quarter million ounces of liquidation from managed money. It's a decline of about 6%. Um, that's on the long side. If you look at the, the shorts, they've bought back a tiny amount. They've bought back five and a quarter million ounces in the week between the 1st and the 8th of February. But it's more interesting to look back at the, the week ending the 1st of February, where they actually increased their shorts by about 49, almost 50 million ounces. Let's call it 50 million ounces. So that was a reasonably large chunk of additional um, short selling. And just looking at where the um, volume weighted average price of that is, adjusting my paperwork like the North Korean newsreader here. Um, I, <laughs> I think that um, the, the volume weighted average price is just over 23 bucks. So those shorts that um, sort of went for that uh, went, went for that little bit extended short selling back then, it's actually a little bit on the defensive now. So you might see that if the price carries on rising and, you know, yeah, as you said, expect it to tag along with gold, um, you, you might see those shorts getting under further pressure, might be actually looking to buy buy back and uh, sort of cut their losses possibly. You can't really tell where their point of pain will be. And I think it, given where the technicals are on, on a medium term scale, technicals for silver is not as good as gold. The price is still below the weekly cloud, not above the weekly cloud. So that's, um, that's less positive. Um, they might be more um, confident about staying in for the longer term. But if they do fold, then that's obviously going to be an added source of um, buying uh, energy because they'll be they'll be buying back those those uh, loss making positions. 
Um, now, before we move on, point of pain is another one of my favorite sayings of yours, and I've managed to introduce that into my own lexicon. Uh, and if anybody hears me say it, it came from Nick. I completely <laughs> stole it from him. All right, Nick, we're going to move on to the meatier part of today's conversation. And we've got several subjects we do want to cover, uh, but I believe they're all equally important as they do help explain the bigger picture of what's impacting the gold markets. Yes. Uh, first of all, we're going to start with central banks. Now, we touched uh, on this topic in one of our very first podcasts way back last year, and that is uh, the central banking policy divergence. Uh, we've got the Fed potentially starting an aggressive tightening cycle. Uh, the ECB, ECB uh, reluctant, reluctantly whimpering that they'll hike later in the year. Uh, then at the other end of the spectrum, we've got the Bank of Japan not doing anything and the People's Bank of China easing. What does this divergence say about current global central banking policies? I think the the larger picture is, is that um, central banks are not necessarily moving in in a, a totally coordinated fashion of course but they are there is a pivot towards tightening and that pivot towards tightening is largely is obviously led by the fed um hugely um and it's a question for a lot of them is just to what degree and what pace they 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 move in in this tightening cycle but i believe we are in a a tightening cycle a net tightening cycle um boj is still uh, broadly, um, sort of not 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 totally responsive, responding. So you know more business as usual, I guess. Um, and the uh, People's Bank is, um, if anything, as you said, slightly easing, and that's a reflection, I think, of the reality on the ground in China relative to um, certainly not relative to America, where you've got the zero COVID policy and a vulnerable property market, um, sort of. Basically, you know, the, the, the PBOC has to be on the monetary policy defensive. But overall, I think we're in a net-net, certainly in a net-net tightening cycle. And when the Fed's in a tightening cycle, and pretty much we all are, um, the interesting thing, of course, is the RBA is still, um, you know, kind of uh, being ever patient. Um, and an interesting comment by one of the... Um, uh, you know, as uh, uh, a senior analyst elsewhere, whose name was obviously immediately deserted me, um, but she she made the obvious point, or the well, not the obvious, the good point that um, the longer the RBA waits, the more likely they may have to do a short and sharp tightening cycle, um, which then leaves them relatively less well positioned um, should they need to ease again um, as you know the, the next phase of the economic cycle comes through. So, you know, I guess the point is, is that the RBA does get a lot of um, perhaps, um, you know, concerned coverage about the, the pace at which they choose to tighten. Um, the important thing is, is that there is not market expectations, rightly or wrongly, whether um, but market expectations, and they're driven by people who have got actual skin in the game. Um, the, the, the difference between the expectations for RBA tightening and Fed tightening are not significantly different, which is something that's going to come out in uh, my my written monthly report uh, for a sort of a plug there. Um, but yeah, look, uh, you know, effectively, you know, ten-year real rates, you know, going going back to the Fed and uh, what's what's happening. Um, there is a real discussion around whether uh, 
how quick and how powerful um, the Fed liftoff should be. Jim Bullard is the he's the um, president of the St. Louis Fed, just so you know. He is the cheerleader, if you like, for the um, the more hawkish end of the thing. In fact, they said the hawkish discussion really is all about Jim Bullard at the moment. Um, and then there are other um, less hawkish uh, 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 members, um, not necessarily mem- you know presidents, not necessarily members of the FOMC this year, but Esther George and. Uh, um, daily of the uh, San Francisco Fed, for example. And their their take on it is to be more nuanced and say that uh, uh, slower and steadier, well, slower is 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 better. They're concerned about, about making a policy upset, maybe jamming on the brakes too um, too quickly. And, and I think that's a an understandable point to be cautious because of the sheer amount of debt that is affected by this tightening. But at the same time, Jim Bullard's point is, is, you know, we could really get behind this um, inflationary curve now that we've accepted that it's not a transitory phenomenon. Um, all right. So while we're talking Fed and their policies, uh, we still don't know what the Fed are actually going to do at the March meeting uh, or how aggressive the tightening cycle is going to be. Mm. Nonetheless, raising rates from the Fed is going to create a dollar positive environment. So this is really a two part question here. So uh, do you have any particular targets in mind for the DXY? Uh, and obviously, too, uh, is this going to put any pressure onto gold? Yeah, um, on the DXY, which you know we're using, even though people don't trade the DXY, we say that people I like to use it as a sort of broad dollar index, um, which it is. I, th- I think um, you know back to uh, back to you know ninety eight plus. I'm trying to um, you know I didn't bring my point and figure chart of the DXY with me, so um, higher is the uh, is the uh, short answer. We've already touched 97, <laughs> so saying 98 is hardly a dramatic thing. I might expand on that theme the next time um, because I don't want to give an overwhelmingly high uh, uh, sort of uh, you know uh, print and or, or I should say prediction, and I might throw some maybe more real world ones in there around where the uh, euro US dollar targets are to use like a major currency pair but yeah higher um also real rates they have uh, moved significantly higher i think they're around about you know now they're in the minus 40s for the 10-year real rates given that they were sub sub minus one um you know very recently that gives you a good idea of genuine increase in, in tightness um nominal rates naturally heading higher um the the increase in real rates and the um, general firmness of the dollar, the, you know, the the dollar is in a still in a bullish trend. So you know, if it fell a little bit last week, or you know, whatever it did last week or the week before, it is not shown signs of departing from that that upwards rising trend channel. Both that and the increase in real rates are gold negative. So if you took Obviously, you can't. But if you were to take the geopolitical situation away and abstract the Russia-Ukraine situation out of this, actually, gold would be in a very, very um, negative environment, um, facing a really profound um, pair of headwinds. So that's something to think about. It doesn't really matter right now because when you've got, um, you know, the the possibility of conflict in um, in, in, in that part of the world, then nobody is really caring too much 
about what is going on with uh, real rates that becomes a sort of second order phenomenon. But um, you have to be aware of it if, uh, if for example, um, you know, just depending on how, th how things work out on the geopolitical front. Um, that's a, a great take there, Nick. But before we move on to my next question, mm. I will just point out to anybody listening that if you are after Nick's DXY point and figure chart that he absentmindedly did not bring in with him to this recording, <laughs> it will be in his monthly report. And I will be providing details at the end of today's podcast on how you can get access to Nick's reports. Okay, Nick, I want to bring this back to gold. So I am thrilled that you ended the conversation, uh, your answer there. So as you just pointed out, we have a strong dollar environment with negative real yields. Uh, and this is creating confusion for gold watchers, especially with the geopolitical tensions in the background or foreground based on the headlines yeah. reading while we're recording this. So while we aren't seeing an overwhelmingly negative gold story, it might not be as positive as some spectators think it should. So there's a couple of points I want you to expand on here in more detail. Now, first and foremost, let's backtrack to the 11th of February. So that was Friday last week when gold really rallied into the close mm -hmm. of the US trading hours. So can you sort of summarise that buying action for people? Because you and I did notice that um, it, it was rapid. Yeah, and I mean, it was a response to um, it was a response to the uh, uh, to, to to some degree to the concerns that you know you didn't want to be left um, short perhaps over a weekend where there might be really really important news about um, what was going on with the Ukraine. So um, I think it was a you know uh, clearly a sort of a de-risking moment there for um, some market participants, and uh, you know. Uh, you know, yeah, obviously, I don't know how thin the market really was on that uh, at that time. But yeah, definitely not wanting to be exposed uh, going into a weekend where um, talks were looking more and more confrontational. Uh, yep. So that brings me to the next point, which I guess is what we need to look at. And that's the gold flows going in this month. Now, as you pointed out with managed money data, um, it, you know, it's, la it's lagging behind. I think the freshest numbers you've got are from the 8th of February. Yeah. But you had a great phrase yesterday um, in the office when I was actually up in Sydney uh, and you called it that it's really important to look at what fast money and slow money are doing. Now, of course, you're referring to gold futures and gold ETFs. Yes. So when we look at these two pockets of the market, what are they signalling to you? Well, if you look at the ETFs, you know, they're... they're they're adding, which is good, and they've started to add a, a fair bit more. And you can see that the um, in in the big picture, you know, there has been a tick up, um, uh, you know, in the last couple of weeks. So, um, if you if you look at the sort of from the end of the the year, I think you know we've got about sort of uh, fifty five or sixty tons added. I think um, I might have to uh, sort of correct that later, but um, you know, in a reasonably significant amount of um, of gold added. Uh, but nothing sort of, you know, nothing, uh, you know, really, really huge. I think actually I said um, uh, for the December, the 20th of December to the 8th of Feb, um, must have chosen 20th December for a, a profound reason, there was 53 tonnes of gold inflows. Um, that's, uh, that's, if you like, the slow money uh, uh, kind of count. Um, the managed money, you know, which is margined and so on via the uh, CME futures, they actually had net outflows of 44 tons. So if you're looking at um, the, the net of those two, you're really not seeing, and this again goes to what I said, you know, near the beginning of uh, our discussion, you're not seeing over that period of time, 
a really wholesale um, endorsement of of, uh, of gold as an asset, um, and that, and that I think goes back. If you take away the um, political concerns, which have been there rumbling in the background, but have obviously tightened sharply in the last two weeks, um, that that tells you a lot about um, the the rise, the sharp rise in real rates, and the fairly um, sort of you know positive outlook for the dollar. And interestingly enough, just just to, this is um, perhaps another sort of lens through which to look at these things. Now, this might have changed overnight, so I'm going back sort of 48 hours uh, out of date. But if you look at something which I think has been an interesting proxy for anxiety about um, conflict with Russia and how that would affect commodity markets and uh, assets more broadly, if you look at um, one, one way of looking at that is just because Russia is a significant um, producer of palladium, which is a you know a hugely important metal across a range of industries, but most importantly of all, it's important. It's an essential ingredient for um, the automobile sector. You can't sell a car without a um, catalyst, and uh, the great many gasoline engine cars contain palladium-rich catalysts. Um, one month and three month palladium swaps have really hardly moved, um, and that tells me that the palladium market which may be obviously hugely well supplied, but generally never feels like it is, is not terribly concerned about um, the outcomes of uh, conflict um, between Russia and the Ukraine and the various kind of, um, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, sanctions, <laughs> that's the word. They're not, uh, you know, because that is not, that is that is a sensitive market with um not a huge amount of uh, uh, spare capacity, but it's not not looking like a market which is running scared ahead of um, those events. Let's see if that main, that that situation maintains itself. But I just think that's a perhaps a, 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 a another way of looking at what another market is is uh, saying or, or or feeling perhaps about the about the, the conflict. And that again circles back to if you take if you take um, the Ukraine, the, the geopolitics out of the gold situation. That's the one thing, profoundly important though it is, that's the one really, really bullish kind of tailwind for gold in an environment which should otherwise, I think, be dominated by by um, by headwinds. Look, that is a fantastic take, and I really like you referencing the uh, palladium market there. Now, obviously, you have a rich history of the PGM markets, and one day we're going to do a podcast all about that just for my own amusement. Um, <laughs> I really like that you <laughs> – I love learning about the PGM market. Um, now, I really like what, that you've pointed to that because I sent, essentially this leans on the fact that um, you know, this isn't a fee story that's driving gold right now. It's more of a, like, again, I'm quoting you from another time, but a gentle rotation into an asset class. Mm. So I think that's quite an important takeaway uh, for people. But before we move on to the important- It, it might be a little bit fearful if you're, um, I mean, there's clearly, there's clearly concern about, um, you know, there's clearly concern about Russia and Ukraine. So maybe, I don't know, that there's a, there's a fear dimension there, I think. Well, while we've been talking, gold hit 1875 and then right. came back down a bit. So there's certainly movement in the market. Yeah. 
Um, I do want to touch on one more thing just mm. gently, and this is really because uh, we don't often see Bloomberg journalists indulging in whispers, uh, but there's been a couple of comments from uh, two different journalists uh, who do work for Bloomberg or at least write for Bloomberg, mm. uh, and they've talked about how there's perhaps a whale in the gold market. Now, Nick, you have extensive experience in the precious metals market. Um, tell me, have you seen ev- any evidence or, you know, can you join any pieces of the puzzle or hard data together to point between uh, to point to some mysterious whale hiding in the depths of the gold market it's a really interesting point because um uh yeah because i i read one of those articles by um and definitely by someone who's got a um really good take on the gold market so um, so I'm sort of have to be mindful of of, of that <laughs> um uh you know I have one, well, one, maybe I have a whole list of them, but I've definitely got one uh, thing which you might call a bit of an intellectual def- deficiency, which is that I don't really, I, I do rely a lot on what um, you can count as evidence. Um, and that's why we talk about things like, um, you know, manage money and ETFs and refer to what's, you know, what is actually measurable out there. And of course, you know, that's that sort of, uh, that comes at a slight cost because it it uh, it sort of concentrates your your theorizing on on, on what can be measured, and maybe that's a, a kind of a limitation. But on the other hand, it means that our discussions about gold don't float freely like um, a child's balloon at a birthday party. So, and that <laughs> also has its advantages. Um, so, anyway, back to the whale. Um, the reality is is that if you look at Manage money. If you look at ETFs, and if you look at the um, outflow of gold from the uh, the LBMA and so on, um, and I, I'm you know what I'm, I'm a bit remiss here because I was I was thinking yesterday I must go and uh, actually look at that um, you know print it out and have it next to me so I can refer to the tremendous increase in holdings and then the very 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 slight decrease. If you look at it. All of those things. There's not an, an awful. There's no, there's 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 no um, evidence of a whale, um, and there may be evidence that comes out in the future. But we're only looking at stuff. We only can we can only talk about stuff that we can point to and address right now. So that that side um, doesn't really doesn't really incline me to think that there's a whale. It just it. And I'm, you know, it, it is possible when you can't see something that's you, you, you reach for other explanations, right? One one explanation I would put out there to you is that in times of heightened geopolitical concern, maybe the uh, elasticity or whatever um, for the gold price changes. And you don't need that much um, encouragement to send the price that much higher um, because you have a sort of like rather inelastic situation and, um, you know, a certain, a certain amount of dollars then uh, pushes the price um, quite, uh, quite a bit higher compared to ordinary situations where maybe uh, the market, you know, uh, responds to fluctuations in um, demand or, and, uh, or relative changes in demand. Um, fairly easily without too much uh, too much change in the um, you know the, the the price, and that is something that 
that's something that sort of makes me wonder if that's a that's a feature of the current market. But you know what? The oceans are big, can hide a whale. This is actually a, a pretty large market. It can hide a whale for a while. But at the moment, I haven't seen a spout on the horizon. Great, uh, great analogy there. I like that one. All right, we were going to need to draw today to a close, but more than anything, I think the trading desk needs you back. There are some exciting group chats happening in the background. Yeah, I can see them popping so up. I won't hold on. <laughs> yeah, so come, there's probably some ding ding happening in the background of today's podcast. Um, so we will keep it quick and snappy. Uh, tell me, what is your biggest takeaway from today's? Um, uh, today's conversation, I guess mine's actually twofold. Mm-hmm. Mine is looking at the Palladian markets for signs of stress and a reaction to the Russian-Ukraine or emerging Russian-Ukraine problem. I'm not even sure emerging is the right use to word there any uh, right word to use there mm-hmm. anymore, as it's no longer emerging. It has emerged. Yes. Um, and also to the strong dollar story uh, with you know rising negative uh, rising negative real yields. Uh, these are you know if we didn't have the uh, the drum beats of war in the background, perhaps gold would be facing much bigger headwinds than we've got right now. What about you, Nick? Yeah, pretty much the same thing. Um, I think the, the uh, obviously I'm sort of, you know, probably mostly concerned about how the next, uh, you know, the immediate future plays out, um, you know, with, uh, with uh, you know, the Ukraine and so on. Um, it's, a, it's a really, that, that is such a huge subject on its own, um, on its own merits, uh, and probably not one that you know we can sort of expand upon upon here. Um, there, there's an amazing book, by the way, and so I'm going to plug somebody else's book, you know, on our podcast um, by the American <laughs> uh, historian called Timothy Snyder, um, who's, who's a great writer, and he wrote a book um, a couple of years ago um, uh, called Bloodland. Bloodlands, and it's it doesn't refer entirely to Ukraine. It refers to that whole margin um, up and down, sort of to the um, sort of that Black Sea right up to uh, the Arctic Circle, or near near the or near perhaps uh, the part of Russia that uh, heads towards um, uh, the Gulf of, Gulf of Bothnia or whatever it is, um, and how just huge conflicts have played out. Not only conflicts um, between countries, but um, internal conflicts um, and and so on um, that have proved absolutely disastrous for people who live there. So um, I'm not going to say a huge amount more about about the, the subject itself, but actually just to recommend that book to anybody who's you know got a uh, you know plane trips or holidays or time to spend. And I'm pretty sure listeners are way too busy, but um, it's a it's a recommendation because it's a fantastic um, and very dark and tragic. Um, uh, telling of uh, of multiple tales that are all centered on that geography. With that, I'll end. Okay. Well, that was um, a, a bleak spot to end, but <laughs> <about> okay. That. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Look, uh, Nick, I know you've got to get back to the trading desk. I, I just want to say once again, thank you for being here and I look forward to seeing you next time. Absolutely, Shay. Wonderful to see you too. And uh, we shall catch up soon. Take care. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to get a better understanding of the technical indicator Nick uses, the Ichimoku Cloud. It's available on most trading platforms. Alternatively, you can check out the show notes over at abcrefinery.com forward slash podcast. Here you can resign up to receive more information from Nick Frappel, including his monthly report, 
where he incorporates technical analysis alongside macro market commentary. That's all from us today at ABC Bullion and ABC Refinery. We look forward to seeing you next time.